This is Relationship Truth Unfiltered, a podcast that ditches destructive traditions and delves into real biblical teaching about relationships. Welcome, welcome. I am Leslie Vernick, and today we are talking with Greg Wilson and Jeremy Pierre. Greg and Jeremy have co-authored the book, When Home Hurts, A Guide for Responding Wisely to Domestic Abuse in Your Church, which I read and highly endorsed. Greg leads Soul Care Associates, a counseling and consulting practice in Texas, and he specializes in counseling adolescents, men, couples, and families through a wide range of issues, including abuse and domestic violence. He also consults with leaders of churches and other organizations on adopting best practices for care. Greg is married and has one daughter. Jeremy Pierre is the dean of the Billy Graham School of Missions and Evangelism and Ministry and professor of the biblical counseling at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He and his wife, Sarah, have five children and live in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome to both of you. I'm so glad you're here. Great. Thanks so much, Leslie, for having us. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having us. You know, I want to start with just how, or even perhaps a bigger question, why? As two men in the church, did you get interested in the topic of destructive relationships? Greg, do you want to start? Yeah, I'll, I'll be happy to go first. So, um, as Leslie said, I have a counseling practice here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It's mostly a marriage and family counseling practice. We're in the suburbs, and we have a lot of marriages, and we have a lot of families. Um, and so, although I, I do the gamut, um, as she described, I do a lot of relationship, um, a lot of relationship counseling. Um, and I'm also involved in my church. I'm a care deacon at uh, at my church, which is a large um, church, uh, here in the, in the Dallas Fort Worth area as well. And what I began to notice several years ago now is that both in my counseling practice and in my ministry at the church is that there were some couples that would come seeking relationship help. But as I began to learn, they, they didn't really have a relationship problem. They had a different kind of problem as, as you're well aware, Leslie, the, the problem that they had was that it was uh, an abusive or a destructive relationship. But we came up with this, uh, the way that we distinguish it in the book is the difference between sense of competition um, in a relationship, which would be, you know, me before you, I'm just preferring myself to you versus sins that have a more of a, a predatory or parasitic uh, kind of quality uh, to them, which is me over you. Um, and uh, it gets into the power and control dynamics and the entitlement and some of the other things. So I began to, I started seeing these kinds of relationships come into my practice. Um, and I became uh, pretty convinced that most Christian counselors I knew, including myself, honestly, uh, several years ago, and our church was just not doing a good job. Like we didn't, we didn't get this. We didn't see, and we were treating relationship problems. We were treating abuse problems like relationship problems. They would come in saying, this, um, this is a relationship problem. This is a marriage problem. And we would just assume that they knew that that's what it was and behave in that kind of way. Of course, to the detriment of the person who's suffering in the relationship. Um, and around that time, I met Jeremy Pierre. Uh, I was going to uh, work on a doctorate, and I was talking to him about doing a doctorate at the seminary that he's 
um, at, and I told him what was on my heart as far as like what I was seeing in our church and in my practice. Um, and, uh, Jeremy, you can pick up from there if you want to, or you can go, you can backtrack a little bit if you, if you need to yeah. as well. Yeah. So Greg touched on the origin story of the book, but sort of the origin story of what you were asking about, Leslie, like my interest in this was actually far, uh, longer ago than that. Uh, my family, I'm one of six kids, and my oldest sister actually was in an abusive marriage that we did not know about at the time. It was it was very well hidden for a few years. Uh, and when that came out, I was in high school at the time, and it honestly rocked my world, um, not just about domestic abuse, but about the nature of what people are capable of and how what appears at the surface is often very different in the heart. And so that's sort of the origin story of my interest in, in helping folks in domestic abuse situations, but also in counseling itself. I, I really, as I look back on my life, that was the first time, and I went to a great church. And by the way, they responded really well to that situation. Okay. Now there's, there's things that they weren't sort of dialed into. There's ways they could have improved, but their heart, was for my sister as she was hurting. And I just am so very thankful for that. But, and this was a that, long time ago, so that was great. It, yeah, it was a long time ago. And 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 what I'm super thankful for, even looking back now, is I think that began my journey, even thinking about what does it mean for people to deal with their inner life before the Lord and to be aware of the things that they don't want to be aware of in their motivations and in their actions and in the impact that it has on other people. Right. And so that sort of began a trajectory towards ministry for me, let alone sort of being concerned with this really important issue. So then the origin story of the book, as, 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 as Greg was getting at, was I just found in Greg uh, a, a man who has spent thousands of hours sitting with abuse victims, abusers, and uh, and and with my theological background, we just sort of combined in such a way where we wanted to write a biblically informed book that nevertheless had the wisdom of experience with individuals in the complexities of what goes on in an abuse situation. So that's what gave us both confidence to kind of move forward with the project. I loved how you phrased, um, and I don't know if I can even recall it, the different kinds of sin, but the sins that were more predatory and the control over. And I wonder how you as men who grew up in a, you know, evangelical complementary church, patriarchal culture, kind of were able to see that because I think so many churches, when they think of power over, they sort of think that that's actually biblical, that it's authority, it's God's right, you're the head, you're the authority over. And so uh, obviously you have power and control over. So how did you distinguish that as men who still um, believe some of the views of complementarianism and yet don't subscribe to a power over dynamic in marriage? I am a complementarian and I'm very happy to be one because I think that's how scripture comes to us. I know there's some you know debate on that in evangelicalism, but I humbly would say, I think authority is a God-given gift. Now, authority as defined by God to be used for God's purposes. 
And so when I think of that, I think of Jesus's words that the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That happens in the very context of a debate between the disciples about who was going to be most influential, have the most authority, be most glorified. And Jesus's whole point was authority is given for the good of those under it. That's how authority is like me. And so uh, when we talk about the, that word and we talk about what it means to be, you know, complementarian or the, the, the husband as head of the wife, I think what that means is the onus of responsibility to act for the good of the other falls on the husband in a unique way. So, so Leslie, this is what I actually tell all of my complementarian friends and in our circles. A consistent complementarian approach to this sees the man as more responsible for the impact his behaviors have on his wife than, than she is for the impact her behaviors have on him. That's just consistent with whom much is given or entrusted, much is expected. And so what that means is not that we only merely come down hard on the guy and the woman always gets a pass, but... But it does mean that authority means the guy doesn't get to use his authority for his own desires. And insofar as he is doing that, he is held into stricter account. And we take that more seriously than I think we otherwise would. So I hope that's a helpful clarification for you. We, I believe at least, I think Greg would agree with me, that authority is a good thing, but authority must be defined in terms of the purposes and the scope of what Jesus says. I hear a lot of men say that they know that they're supposed to lead in their homes, right? Um, and that's a word that we use a lot. Uh, that word is not explicitly used in scripture. So I usually push back on it and say, well, you know, what do you mean by lead? What does that look like? And because if, if we're leading like Jesus has called us to lead, then we're going to follow the instruction that he gave to James and John or Mrs. Zebedee, depending on whether you're looking at Matthew's version of that uh, story or Mark's version of that story, where he says, even the son of man came not to uh, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom or uh, Philippians two, that talks about uh, that, that, that ancient hymn that's in Philippians two, that talks about, uh, Jesus being equal with God and and uh, giving giving up uh, what he had with the Father um, to uh, humble himself and become obedient even to death even death on a cross and and even the teaching of of Ephesians uh, five that talks about uh, how the role of a husband in a headship capacity which that is the con I mean it's the context that Paul's writing in is to uh, love his wife like Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. And so that's the, that's, and there's so much more. And uh, Jeremy being the seminary uh, dean and professor that he is could probably elaborate even more than I have, but like, but that's the biblical basis for what Jeremy is talking about is that this is a, yes, it is leading and yes, it is authority, but it's not like if you are the president of a bank, Right in our Western culture, um, if you're a, a a man who has authority at work, 
um, or in the organization that he leads, it it pro- it doesn't look like that. Leadership in the church and leadership in the home um, are supposed to be that kind of upside down type of leadership that Jesus is talking about in um, in Matthew twenty and and Mark ten, and that Paul's talking about in Ephesians two and and all the rest. And that is that's a place where I think a lot of a lot of people get confused. I agree. And so how has the conservative reformed church who needs so desperately this message, how have they received it? Yeah, I have found that the resistance is not a resistance of cruelty or resistance of consciously wanting to, you know, protect or enable abusers and keep victims down. I have found that most of the churches that I consult with on sort of the more thorny situations are well-meaning and they want to do the right thing and they want to uphold righteousness. And what gets in the way at times is I think there's a little bit of, of what your previous question was getting at, Leslie. I think there's a little bit of misconception of what headship actually looks like. I think that's part of it. I have personally found that a bigger part of it is an inadequate doctrine of sin, ironically. Okay. So, so hey, listen, I'm reformed. So, so that means we believe in total depravity. We have a very deep and very thorough doctrine of sin, but, but sometimes the doctrine of sin can be more deep than it is dimensional. What I mean by that is, yeah, we know it goes all the way down to our toes, right? We're total total depravity means every aspect of it of us has been touched by sin's corruption. Okay. It doesn't mean that all we think is sin, but it means every aspect is touched by sin. But when I say dimensional, I mean sometimes it's a little bit harder to see how that expresses itself in obvious but also less obvious ways, subtle ways. So for instance, sin, all sin in scripture has a self-deceptive element to it. I think of Jesus's seven woes of hypocrisy to the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. Man, you do a study on that. That is as dynamically or psychologically complex as you can imagine, where basically Jesus keeps hammering at, you look like this, you think you're righteous, you think this is okay because you do X, Y, and Z, but inside you are rotting. You are not like me. Or Hebrews 3, 12 through 13, uh, there, there's this, this inward deception that we ourselves can be hardened by a deceptive heart and not be aware of it. Or, you know, 1 John 1, we all love 1 John 1, 9 if we confess our sins, but that happens between 8 and 10 where it says, if you say you have no sin, in other words, you don't agree with God about the depth of your sin, you're deceiving yourself. That There's a reflexive deception that happens with sin. So all that to say, I, th- I have found that churches have a hard time acknowledging that, m- that men that they know, they think of as good guys that volunteer at church, that men could possibly be capable of the level of ugliness and the level of of abusiveness that this woman, this wife is claiming in, and disclosing to people, you know, at, at great cost and risk to herself, right? And so, so in other words, I don't know, Leslie, I, I'm going to say it in an overly simplistic way. Good men have a hard time imagining how 
bad bad men can be. And I know that I'm being simplistic because we're all bad in the sense of like, we all need the redemptive work of Christ. But what I mean by that is when someone, when your average church pastor who hopefully is a godly man at home and is trying to live a godly life and help other men be godly, when they hear about levels of manipulation to this degree, it's hard for them at times to be dialed in because it's hard for them to believe. It's hard for them to even relate to it, okay? And yet, I would say, I think our calling, as, as Jesus's words in Matthew 10, right? We have to be as innocent as sheep, but as wise as serpents. That That's kind of a shocking illustration because Jesus knew what he was doing, talking about this craftiness of the serpent in Genesis 3. So, the context of his admonition to be shrewd as a serpent is about spotting the wolves among us. So it is a call to pastors and elder boards and church leadership to be willing to do the hard work of being shrewd, even when it's super uncomfortable. And I could say more about how that's uncomfortable, but I hope that was a good answer. I think they are uncomfortable with a number of things. One is really seeing him to the level of depravity that she may be describing him as. But I also think that the conservative church so highly values marriage mm -hmm. yeah, that almost nothing qualifies in their mind to create such a breach in that yeah. relationship that qualifies for it to be terminally ill. Yeah. And, and I, I would I, argue, I would actually argue that the more we value marriage as God has designed it right. and defined it, the more we will be dialed into these things. Because again, going back to the headship thing, that man is responsible for representing Jesus Christ to his wife and to his family in laying down his life for her building up. And one of the ways we define abuse in our book is that we as image bearers use our capacities as people to diminish the capacities of another person to make her easier to control. That's tearing down, that's diminishing, that's making her in one sense, uh, treating her less human. Whereas the admonition in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, everywhere, is that the husband actually builds her up into a fuller version of what she was made to be by God. And so I would say that the more we honor marriage as God described and not just as a convenient contract legally, then we're actually going to be more dialed into the potential uh, misuse of it. Sometimes, and Leslie, I know you've used this language before, sometimes um, in the church, in our first impulse, uh, we are more focused on saving a marriage or on thinking about the marriage and what God thinks about the marriage and what God wants for the marriage than we are about what God wants for the people in the marriage, the individuals in the marriage. And it's both and, right? It's not either or. I mean, the marriage is still important. All of us are married. Um, you know, marriage is a good thing. And um, sometimes in relationships, not even just marriage, but in relationships in general, there are these bad actors that are in the relationship for wrong reasons. Um, and they are doing harm in the relationship to get something out of it for themselves. 
And um, there has to be a discernment to be able to see that um, because if you can help the other, if you can help the person who is the bad actor in that situation, see what's going on, then you, you actually absolutely can save and improve the, the marriage or the relationship and the people in it at the same, you can do both, which is what God would have us to do is he would have us to, to have a burning passion and heart to care for the people in the marriage and to care for the marriage itself. And sometimes, as you know, we, we talk about this in our, in our book, but sometimes in it, well, I would say, I would argue in a relationship, in a destructive relationship, always the people in the relationship have to be addressed before God first. And with the hope that at some point later on, you can get down to now we can do some marriage work. But if you go in thinking we're going to do marriage work, that, that brings me back full circle to like what I was seeing in my counseling practice years ago, right? As a couple just saying, we need help with our marriage. No, actually, you need a different kind of help first. Um, And so sometimes the church has to be aware of that as well, because we have all kinds of programs in the church for marriage recovery and things like that, that we will slide couples into when that's not really that's not really what they need at that point. And you're right. That is a hard that's a hard thing. The other thing that I would say just real quickly on what Jeremy was saying a minute ago is that when I'm doing this, this consulting work with churches, when I'm talking to churches or when I'm talking to church leaders, it can be very, very hard, very traumatic even for a woman who has been in an abusive marriage with an abusive uh, spouse to be told that her help from the church is going to be found in going into this room of elders, and they're all men, and they all have like a certain level of power, right, Uh, to instruct those churches that you need to be aware of that dynamic that when that's going on, you know, it might be helpful for her first meeting to be with an elder's wife or a pastor's wife or another woman in the church who uh, does women's ministry or whatever, who's been trained in this dynamic to be the first person that she sits with to tell her story. And then that person brings in, you know, elders in the church at the right time and in the right way um, and often when I am sharing that kind of just practical help with a church, men will actually become tearful and will say, my goodness, I never would have thought that um, a woman in my church would see me as a powerful man who is someone that she should potentially be afraid of. And and that's because I I find when I'm talking to these people, that's because at least these guys, I know that there are bad actors out there in the church too, but these guys that I'm talking about, they are godly men and they do want to be humble and serve and love. And they're just devastated that, you know, that they might be lumped in with a kind of man that they honestly didn't really even think existed in the church. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, and they're, they're learning that they, that they do. Um, and that this guy who um, is her husband, who may look on the outside, you know, as a as an upstanding church going person, when she starts telling her story about the things that happen in their home, 
um, they begin to realize, man, there are there are these other these bad actors that I'm saying that are out there. And I think Jeremy's exactly right. I think a lot of guys who are just trying to uh, serve the Lord and serve their congregations faithfully and love their families, they really are sometimes surprised at how many of these people exist in the church. Yeah. As you've written your book and it's been out for a while, what have you learned the hard way mm. about abuse in marriage? I think what I've learned the hard way is that the obvious situations are the easiest and the less obvious ones are the hardest. And and by the way, I don't mean the obvious situations are easy in the sense of it's less painful for right. the victim or anything like that. I mean, it's less opaque and less mysterious. There, There's less to figure out in terms of what even is going on here and that the actions can be a little bit more decisive and and more immediate if the victim is 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 willing to take those actions it, it it's clear and easier to communicate to your congregation the more obvious it is like in situations of physical danger and physical abuse right. the less obvious ones are harder in that it takes more background knowledge and shrewdness to use that word we were talking about earlier to be able to uh navigate how to move forward in an effective way. Now, I want to be clear, what's what's always should be obvious is even in less obvious situations is we receive what the woman is telling us because she's she's entrusting a lot to you. And we have plenty of commands in scripture that we have to be sensitive to how we are receiving a person in the state that they're in, right? 1 Thessalonians 5 is an obvious place, right? You're supposed to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Well, it would be inappropriate to admonish the weak, right? You admonish the idle, but how do you know whether this person's an idle or a weak or a faint-hearted? Well, you have to receive them. You have to hear them out. You have to weigh what they're saying. And 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 by the way, we, we recommend in our book, you're on the first admission of anything. There's no investigation going on at that point. You are simply creating a safety plan for that woman, for that individual. And we talk about how to do that because you're receiving what she's saying to you at face value. And if you're entering into then the process of helping her navigate that and understand what she's going through herself, then at the appropriate time and with her permission, confronting him and moving it through there, it will become clear. The things that are hidden will become revealed. That's just the nature of these things in a carefully thought through process, which again, we're doing our best attempt to lay out in the book. So any fear of kind of making the wrong choice should not paralyze you from doing the things that you know to do in the moment. That's my main admonition to pastors. You know what to do in the moment in terms of receiving someone at face value and sharing her concerns as if they are your own. Then trusting the process, which again, seek training, seek knowledge, but then you trust the process that that what needs to become evident will become evident. Honestly, Leslie, I've learned that the hard way, right? In a sense of, by God's grace, I don't think we, we ever made any major errors on obvious things. We always made the right reports. We always did the right protections in our in our church and in our ministry and in, our, in my counseling, but I have, I had, I had to grow. I just, I, and, and I've had to ask forgiveness from, from people 
that I, I don't think I did as good of a job as I should have done of being dialed into the subtle, the more subtle dynamics of how manipulation works. Um, because I just had an inadequate doctrine of sin is, 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 is what I go back to. I believed in total depravity theoretically, but I, but it was hard for me to see it work out dimensionally in relationship in such a way that has major impact on somebody else. Yeah. Leslie, I, I think, and it's, it's really humbling for me to admit this as a counselor, but you know, we're all in a, we're all in a process, but I would say years ago when, when these, when I first started really becoming aware of these dynamics, I, I didn't know, and this gets to what Jeremy was talking about. I, I mean, I was a, I was a Christian. I was, I had been an elder in previous churches. I was a deacon in my, in my current church. Um, I didn't know what I didn't know about, like what it means to like show up as a safe person for someone else. So I didn't, I I've learned a lot through this process about learning how to be a safe, curious, non um, threatening presence with someone as they're telling their story. And I, if you had asked me if I, if you had asked me if I was that 15 years ago, I would have said, well, sure I am, you know, <laughs> um, and everybody that I had, uh, you know, most of the people that I had talked to and most of the people that knew me would say that about me too. But, um, but there's, it's one thing to be a, a, a safe, non-judgmental presence for someone holding space for someone Versus being able to be that person for someone who has maybe for a long period of time suffered an emotionally destructive mm -hmm. marriage. Um, they need a, a different level of um, just peaceful, calm, safe presence in order to tell their story. And I, I think that that's uh, one of the biggest things that I've learned to be more curious, which again, as a counselor, it's almost embarrassing to say that these are things that I've learned, but I think that these are things that we always learn to be more curious, to not make assumptions, to listen better and hold space better, um, to be more like Job's counselors were when they first showed up on the scene <laughs> and less like they were after they started talking. Right. And so, um, those are, those are the things, I think those are the things that I've learned the most. Do you wonder whether your marriage is just difficult or if it's actually destructive? Leslie has a quick start guide that will help you answer that question. Not only that, if you find your marriage is in the destructive category, this guide will give you concrete biblical answers on your next steps. Go to leslievernick.com forward slash start to get your free quick start guide. And please know this, you are seen, you are heard, and friend, you are valued. I don't think pastors get adequate training in this, not only dynamic of abuse, but this whole dynamic of trauma-informed care and how do we That's hold right. space for someone. Um, right. they're, they're about fixing the problem. They're about yeah. solving, um, discerning who's wrong and who's right and who needs forgiveness and who needs to repent. Um, that seems to be the model in the you know, more conservative churches of how we handle these kind of things. Mm -hmm. And so what advice would you give 
when a woman goes before her conservative church, that might help her to feel more confident that she will either be believed or at least listened to or heard because, you know, and I don't blame pastors for doing it wrong. I don't think they get enough training to do it right. They don't even yep. get enough training about what the problem is. So they're doing the best they can. Um, but I think that the pastors that I've talked to feel very anxious mm -hmm. when they start hearing these stories because they mm -hmm. don't know what to do. And so they go into, well, why don't you try harder? Why don't you push his buttons anymore? Why don't you do this more? Why don't you love him? You need to forgive. You know, they're trying to solve this out of their anxiety and their goodwill, I believe. But what advice, we mostly have women who listen to this, um, what advice would you give the woman who... Maybe your pastor means well, but he's messing it up <laughs> and mm. she wants to be heard. What what could she do or what could she say um, in those moments that could maybe invite her pastor to pause and listen better? Yeah, that's that. I love your question, Leslie. And I want to actually answer that maybe in a surprising way, because I actually want to think about your female listeners hearing my answer to this. I actually want to relieve them of the burden of having that perfect combination of words or perfect expression on their face or right strategic approach that's going to make their pastor hear them, right? Because I, I'm not convinced that's something that they can produce, okay? So I'm about to say something hopefully positive and helpful, but I, I want to start by giving that caveat. I don't think the burden is on you to sort of uh, bring about uh, an awareness that's not already there. Okay. Now, having said that, I think the, the right approach is to have such deep confidence in the Lord. Okay. That you can patiently approach things, but with, with a good strategic way. So here's something I have found helpful as I've just observed this in other churches. Okay. If a woman can disclose to another woman who is trustworthy, that she trusts, first of all, obviously, but also is uh, an example of sort of godliness and and a, a pillar even, if, if she can, in the church, and can just basically start there and, and, and get a receptive ear there, oftentimes then approaching the pastor either through her or with her can actually be effective in not having the onus of responsibility just simply on this woman who's already having a hard time with the idea of going in front of uh, a pastor she's not sure is going to be received, okay? So that's at least one, I think, practical idea that, that might be helpful for them to at least prayerfully consider who might that person be. So Greg, I don't know if you have something more. Yeah, I would say um, to your female listeners, kind of piggybacking on what, what Jeremy was just saying, take heart in what these two um, men who are still learning and still in the process have just told you. We were men who people would have looked on the outside and said, Jeremy's got all the answers for this situation. You should go to Jeremy. He'll know what to do. Uh, Greg is a good counselor. He he He's qualified he's trained he knows what to do and we're saying that we are on a learning curve 
and that we have been on a learning curve for a long time. And I would even go so far as to uh, just speak directly to some of the women who are listening and say, it was a woman just like you who helped me better understand what the experience is like. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's important. Your story is, is your story. No one else can tell it like you can. I would empower and embolden that person again in the way that Jeremy's talked about doing it to share her story and to say, I might be, used of God to help this person understand this experience better. Now, I would also say, because I don't want to heap too much of a a burden on this person listening to this, it's not your job to train your pastor in these things. That's not your job. Um, If they just won't hear, you're going to have to find help uh, from another, from another source, right? If they just won't hear you, but can I, can I piggyback on something Greg just said, I really loved so yeah. I I started your answering your question with a practice, just a tip. Greg moved towards a principle. And so let me let me try to summarize or crystallize that principle. It's it's humility. Yeah. Here's what I mean by that. I think I would say to your female listeners in that situation, the evidence you kind of want to observe in your pastor to know his preparedness for that is humility. Is there a willingness to think in ways that are kind of outside his box, a receptivity. I would say if you see evidence of that being there, that's all the more, that should give you all the more confidence that this is a safe and a good conversation. And in situations where you have, you know, a a board of pastors or or multiple pastors at a church, some are going to be more geared and more gifted to exude that than other people. I think that's the beauty of a plurality of elders to me. Often how it's worked in our church and in other churches I've consulted with is you kind of have more tender-hearted elders who are really good at advocating uh, and and you have others who would not be as good at it, right? Well, that's the, the multi-giftedness of the body. Right. And so I would just encourage, look for those indicators and those signs of humility in terms of even prayerfully uh, thinking through your approach. And and Greg captured that, I think, really well there. Yeah, I would say your story is important. Your story deserves to be heard. These people need to hear your story. It will make them better pastors to hear your story. Um, and I would encourage them to tell their story. And, uh, you know, that's at the end of the day, um, their story is is their story and they it, it it needs to be told it deserves to be told yeah i think that's so true and sometimes they're in the middle of their story and they can't even articulate it very yeah, well and so right, that true. makes it that much harder it's not like they right. can you know know the beginning and the end they just are in in the midst of of the trauma and so they may not even be mm-hmm being very linear in their story or being right and that's where you some of those questions like um Tell me about the first time this happened, you know, or this dynamic emerged. Tell me about a typical time. Tell me about the worst time. Um, and we have some of those questions in the book as well to equip. So, you know, what might end up happening is for that person who's kind of in the middle of her story and she's doing what Jeremy encouraged her to do, which I think is great to, to go to someone in the church who is 
uh, female and who has standing, if you will, in the church and talk about those things like that's where I would I would want people in the church to educate themselves on those kinds of those kinds of questions and ways of like uh, getting at the story, because you're right, the story never comes it never comes beginning to end, right? It never comes in a linear way. It always comes, you know, and, and some of that is just a uh, result of trauma as well, as you know. And so like just, and, and understanding that, understanding that there's trauma here and that trauma causes people sometimes to present in ways that um, don't always make them look like the most believable person um, right. in the, in the situation. And so to just understand that about trauma, I encourage this sounds very morbid, but I, I think pastors and, and, and church leaders and helpers should know about the domestic homicide statistics in their state um, because it raises that, that idea that people, that this doesn't happen except for the accounts that you see on the news. I just heard because I live here in Texas that uh, there were 216 domestic homicides in Texas in 2022. Um, now I know that because I'm a counselor, because I do this work, but that is not you. That's a Google search will give you that information. Um, and to know that this kind of thing really happens and 179 of the victims were women and 37 were men. You can see that there's a disparity there. And like you, you just learn these things. And again, that's hopefully we're talking about situations that are way further upstream, I guess, or downstream, depending on how you look at it from that. But but if we can catch those situations when it is a person coming to you and saying, my husband is manipulative and controlling, then maybe we get to that person before she's coming to someone in the church saying, uh, my husband tried to strangle me. Overall, guys, have you seen that curiosity, humility, Willingness to learn, willingness to educate themselves. Um, are seminaries teaching about this these days? Is you know graduate schools teaching about this these days? Are Christian leadership men in their boards and elder? Is this a topic that you think is on the front burner, or is it still, as I've experienced, on the back burner? And no, it doesn't happen here, and we don't have time for this. We don't even have time to watch a video. Yeah, it's a fair question, Leslie. Um, my answer is going to seem a little bit self-serving because I am at a seminary and I am sort of in charge of our curriculum. Um, I don't mean it to sound like blowing our own trumpet or anything like that, but I'm going to answer it straightforwardly. We very much have this concern and we have very much installed more and more in our curriculum in the last five to six years, especially. Um, that's in part uh, because we just uh, the overall like need to improve a curriculum period. But that's also in part because I think there has been a movement by God in the church at large through a lot of good resourcing, a lot of good materials. Leslie, you've worked on this for years and years and years to raise awareness of the seriousness and the prevalence of this in our churches. And so I'm not going to just talk about me and our curriculum and program, but there's many other conservative, even reformed seminaries and training institutes and things like that, that are doing a really, you know, they're, they're making great strides trying to do a better and better job training for this. 
So I'm very thankful for that. I don't want to imply or act at all like we have it solved or that it's 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 adequate. But I, from my seat, am seeing a greater degree of receptivity in 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 the circles that I run in. Now, having said that, I don't want to be dismissive of, boy, there's occasionally where I get called in to maybe do some consulting work or lean in with something where I just absolutely hit a brick wall. And, and that's probably a representative example of that circle of things that it runs in. So I don't want to in any way act like this is something that we're conquering or something that we're solving. I'm just trying to give uh, a sense for there is some positive movement, I think, though we're sober about the reality. Can I plug something real fast that is an opportunity like that? Mm-hmm. So um, all of us have a friend uh, named Chris Moles. Um, and uh, Jeremy and I are both involved in something that he's doing October 10th and 11th, 2024 in Winfield, West Virginia, which is close to where Chris lives. Um, and it's called PeaceWorks Live uh, 2024. And you can find out more about it on chrismoles.org. Um, but I would be remiss in this situation with Jeremy, if I didn't uh, plug the fact that um, that that's uh, coming out and um, that uh, we're we're excited about being able to be uh, part of it. And uh, um, so I think that that's going to be a great training opportunity. You can find out more on chrismoles.org. But yes, there are there are growing training opportunities available um, in organizations like Chris's, um and in the seminaries and then you know and and many of us um uh, darby and myself and chris um and jeremy obviously you know partner with seminaries and do various trainings and things and so there there are opportunities out there for pastors to get more uh, of this kind of training and i would encourage them to do that and if again i know that maybe it's not mostly pastors that are listening but you guys who are listening you've got a voice encourage your pastor, uh, your church leader to uh, come to this. They will uh, learn a lot. You know, I've been teaching on this for over 20 years. And at Mm. the American Association of Christian Counselors Conference this last year, I was speaking on it several times. And this is the first year that I have had a number of men come up and say, I'm hearing you. I'm finally listening. Mm. Thank you. You know, and that was really encouraging to me that, you know, there is some more curiosity, some more interest um, in men being leaders in this field. For a woman to speak into the kind of churches that you're speaking into is invalidated, obviously, because they don't have the leadership or the respect of those positions that, Mm. at least in the past, that other men do. So I think it's so important for men to begin to speak into this subject, into this Mm. topic with real credibility and authority. And so I thank you so much. And if there are some pastors who are listening to this broadcast right now, what would you say to them are the key elements they need to know so that they don't put someone in danger? We've had Mm. in our, in our, in the last four years in our, membership group we've had one woman almost killed by her husband Mm. and three husbands who have killed themselves and Mm. we are quite sure that they would have killed their wife had their wife not had their safety plan in place so we have had some really scary years Mm. with horrible Mm. situations 
And we're not just talking about these because we're talking about all kinds of domestic abusive situations where sure. he might not kill her body, but he's killing her spirit. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. I think you said the key phrase there, Leslie, the number one thing I would plead with pastors is get enough training. And it's not, a. I mean, for this step, it's not a lot, honestly, to be able to create a safety plan when anything is disclosed to you. And by safety plan, as, as Greg and I try to lay out in the book, it can be as simple as where are you going to go? What are you going to do when this, this, or this happens? Who is going to be your safe sort of voices? Who is going to advocate for you? What's going to happen? And that can change the world for somebody and just help her to think in a totally different way than she was thinking about before. It protects her in the immediate sense. And it also gives her freedom to then start realizing, wow, I can see this from an outside perspective because a lot of things she's gotten so acclimated to and used to in that home, she's not able to think outside of that. So, so that is a first and initial and crucial step it doesn't mean you're signing off on literally every word she says. Some some pastors are hesitant to do a safety plan because they think that means, oh, that means I'm automatically believing everything she says. And I just say, brother, brother, pastor, don't even make that your concern. It's it's You don't need to have this evaluation of everything that she says initially. Your job is to treat her as a sister. Your job is to treat her as a daughter, as someone that you love and value their life. And you know what? There's zero risk in creating a safety plan. There's incredible risk in yeah. not doing it yeah. in that initial uh, reception. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing that I would say, I mean, we've said a lot in this uh, hour, but the other thing that I think I would quickly add is know your local resources that you have that that specialize in domestic violence and domestic abuse and have relate just like you would on in for any other area. You should know if you're a local pastor, wherever you are, you should know all your local resources. And don't, uh, I mean, they don't just because they may not um, believe the same way you do as far as the scriptures or as far as the gospel doesn't mean that they can't be helpful in situations like this. So just like you would know the local hospital um, and you would know the local treatment center if someone is, you know, coming to you with an addiction or whatever know the local domestic uh, abuse shelters and agencies. That's a place that you can start. You can start with, for example, in my context, the Texas Coalition for Domestic Abuse. And then you can ask them, you know, who are the people in Denton County or Dallas County or uh, Tarrant County or whatever. And so um, like know those local resources before you need them and have a relationship with them and be willing to learn from them um, and you know, what often you'll find is that they're willing to learn from you too, which could be another inroad for the gospel or, um, you know, whatever. And so, um, that's what I would, that's what I would add to what we've already said. Thanks so much, Greg and Jeremy. And the name of the book is when home hurts a guide for responding wisely to domestic abuse in your church. And I would encourage every one of you who's listening to this, that you just go to Amazon and buy a copy and give it to your pastor and invite him to listen to this podcast because it's a it's a it's a really good resource book especially for pastors in a very conservative reformed 
um, mindset because it really, Jeremy, you do such a good job at expanding all the nuances of scripture in very many ways that are just very affirming to me as a as a godly woman who wants to do the right thing, but for a pastor who is pressured to feel like he doesn't want to make a mistake in those kind of situations, mm -hmm. it's just so helpful to understand it from that deeper, nuanced scriptural way. So thank you so much for being on our podcast, for sharing your hearts and your care for women in these situations and men. And you're right that just some men who can begin to see it and own it can begin to change it, but without being able to see it and own it, it doesn't change. And for a woman to continue to endure and hope in mm -hmm. someone changing who isn't wanting to change and isn't working on change. I mean, Jesus didn't have that hope for, for people who didn't want to change and didn't, and he didn't make them change. And so I yeah, think we need to respect right. their agency mm -hmm. and let them be who they want to be. That's right. Leslie, can I, can I give one last parting, just uh Absolutely. admonition slash it, encouragement, encouragement yeah. to my fellow pastors out there on this, you know, love is a labor and mm -hmm. to, to respond to these situations, right. Takes a lot of labor and to respond to them wrong takes a very little labor actually. Mm -hmm. And part of the labor of love, I get this from Romans 12, nine is let love be genuine, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is what good. Is mm -hmm. So love is the labor I think of opposing what's evil on behalf of someone while upholding what's good. And I just want to say, brother in Christ, that's going to take a lot of your time. It's going to cause emotional agony. You're going to feel confused and inadequate a lot, but this very well may be. And in fact, if someone comes to you, it is your calling from God to love and, and where you can be greatly encouraged is God's going to be with you in that. God's going to do amazing things, hopefully, in the life of that woman, maybe even in the life of a repentant man. But, but what you're also going to find is in your church, there's going to be countless benefits that you didn't plan and didn't realize as you're responding in love to this woman. People are going to hear that and people are going to get on board. And, and, and it just creates this sense of reinforcing a culture where righteousness and protection and justice and all the things that God loves are clearly on display in the conduct of the pastor. And I'm just telling you, health spreads through the church when a pastor acts in a loving and sacrificial way. So, so in other words, it's not wasted time. It, it, it's remarkably effective for the good, not just of that woman and of that family, but of the rest of your church. So that's kind of just a parting word of encouragement to my brother pastors out there. Amen. Thank you so much. Amen. Thank you for listening to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. If you need clarity on whether your marriage is difficult, disappointing, or destructive, go to lesliebernick.com forward slash start for Leslie's free quick start guide. It's totally private and will help you get clear on your next step. Again, that's lesliebernick.com forward slash start. Until next time, may God bless all of your relationships with him, with yourself, and with others.